And as you are, why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Uh, our fe Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that you have revealed to us that we get to now focus on that, Lord, just might help take the edge off of a lot of the fear that's permeating our culture and, Lord, even, quite frankly, many in our church. And so, God, I pray that as we uh, laser beam focus now on some of these things, that, God, you might do a work in our hearts and in our minds in which we might look back on today even and say only God. Would you do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen. So as I said on Christmas Eve, if you were here, <clears throat> what a year uh, this last year has been, right? Like what a year it has been. And I listed a few things that have made this year rather difficult for the vast majority of Americans. Things like a pandemic that is not over yet. Things like an uncertain economy that's wreaking havoc on all sectors. Things like a, a bitter partisan divide on a political level in our country. And then there's more things I could have listed, uh, things like racial inequality and tension, things like the erosion of law and order. There have been so many things in 2020 that has captured the attention of most of Americans, if not all of the world. And with all of this, if there has been one universal response that most people have had to this kind of year, it's fear. We all know that. It's fear. And before I make pass any judgment on this, I just want to say understandably so. I mean, fear is a very natural, albeit fallen response that human beings have to things that threaten them. Have you ever noticed that? Or at least things that appear to threaten them. So the list is endless to the things that you and I fear on a daily basis. We fear things like pain, crime, others not like us, dying, loss of control, change, even God. Uh, some of us even fear very nonsensical things like rest stops. I remember years ago I was traveling uh, up to speak at a conference with my dear friend Tom Schrader, who's obviously now in heaven, and, uh, and Tom and I were traveling on the I-17, and I said, hey, dude, I'm about an hour outside of Phoenix. I, I need to use the facilities. I'm going to pull over at this rest stop up here. I'll never forget, his head jerked toward me, and he said, don't do it. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, rest stops are dirty and they're dangerous. Don't stop at a rest stop. I thought, wow, I mean, he's from Iowa. I guess it's really bad in Iowa. And, and so I said, well, where are we going to stop? And he said, a McDonald's. That's where you stop. And I thought, well, I'm not going to eat off the floor in McDonald's, but okay. So we drove an extra half an hour to McDonald's. Tom had this irrational fear of rest stops. And he's not alone. All of us fear certain irrational things in our lives. We fear a lot of things. And what you need to know is that the Bible understands this. There are lots of, fear, lots of things the Bible lists that people were fearful of. I've been studying the Bible now for 40 years, and I can tell you, if you read the Bible uh, cover to cover, you're going to see fear like this. People had fear of miracles, fear of God, uh, fear of Jesus, fear of inner exposure of their heart, fear of war, fear of others, fear of persecution, fear of rejection, fear of financial loss, fear of death, fear of messing up, fear of failure, uh, fear of being hurt. I, I mean, 
the list is almost endless of, of the things that the Bible lists that human beings tend to fear. So we're gonna move on right now, but the point is, is that it's okay. We all fear as fallen human beings. It's universal to our human condition, and the Bible gets this and affirms this. So the question becomes, what do we do with our fear? And what do we do with a year like 2020, <laughs> in which a lot of us have been gripped by fear, and as Neil mentioned earlier, and I don't know what was said at Cactus or, or, or Northridge or Chapel, but Neil mentioned that, that you know, just flipping the page to 2021 doesn't mean that all of our fears go away. Uh, people are already gearing up for 2021 with fear in hand. And so it's one thing to admit that we have fear and that even fear is a natural part of our fallen human condition, but this doesn't mean that we throw in the towel when it comes to fear, not at all. The Bible, which as we've said, talks a lot about fear, also goes on to help us learn how to handle fear. And watch this, nobody does it better than Jesus. And when Jesus was on this earth, some of you don't know this, he talked a lot about fear. And he helped his original disciples transition from being men who were very fear-based as we're gonna to see today, to men who were very faith-based. And so I want us to read a story together this morning. We're gonna park in front of just one story. It's a true story of something that happens between Jesus and his disciples, and it's all about fear. You're gonna love this story. It's found in Mark chapter four, beginning at verse 35, and follow along as I read this story to you. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, let us go across the lake to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling with water. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea <clears throat> obey him? Now, this is a, a very powerful story, and, and I want you to notice so that we fully understand all that's going on in the story, no less than five movements that Mark walks us through as he tells this simple but profound historical account, five movements that will help us grab onto this story, and here they are. The movements go from the boat to the storm to the miracle to the question to the response. We're going to spend just a few moments uh, looking at these more in detail, but here they are again, the boat, and then the storm, and, and then the miracle, and, and then the question, and, and then the response. And I would submit to you that each of these movements are building toward a crescendo of understanding when it comes to some of the key things that you and I need to understand about fear and its enemy, faith. So let's briefly unpack these five movements, then we're gonna put it all together and you're gonna have one of these aha moments. So first, notice with me the boat, the boat. Uh, this boat, we know from the context of Mark here, was on the shores 
uh, of the Sea of Galilee at the very north end. Here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee that I took years ago, about a decade ago when I was in Israel and I was staying at a hotel right along the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And you can notice that the Sea of Galilee is more like a big lake, right? It actually is a freshwater, freshwater body of water and it's a massive lake and, uh, and, and there's lots of boats on this lake. I took a jog out one morning and there's a marina there and there's a very fun boating lake and it even was 2,000 years ago. And in 1984, around there, there was a massive drought just like we have here in the desert, and, and the water level went way down on the Sea of Galilee. And this is really fun. They discovered this. Let's see the next picture. They actually discovered a boat, now watch this, that they've been able to date to 2,000 years ago on the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Now, before some of you wacko Christians say, it was Jesus' boat. We don't know that it was Jesus' boat, but we do know that this was a boat from the first century, and that they've been able to reconstruct it, and then now there's a museum on the north end of the Sea of Galilee in which they, they show this boat, and here's what the artists have been able to do to show what a boat in the first century would have looked like. So this boat is about 28 feet long, it's about eight feet wide, has a sail on it, because that's how they got across large lakes back then, and, and it could hold about 15 people. Really, that boat that we've discovered from the first century could have been very much the, the kind of boat that Jesus and the disciples were going across the sea in. So now that you have this picture in your head, that's the boat. And then a huge storm hits this lake. Now you're saying, well, I mean, it's just a lake. I mean, how big of a storm could it be? This will be a good tidbit for you. The Sea of Galilee is actually the second lowest body of water as far as sea level goes in the entire world. Did you know that? It's actually the lowest freshwater body of water in the entire world. The Sea of Galilee sits at 700 feet below sea level, below sea level. And so it's a very, very low-lying lake. Now watch this. 30 miles to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon that sits at 9,200 feet above sea level. So you picture it here, you got this lake here, and then to the northeast of it, you have this massive mountain, and then right behind the mountain, you got the Mediterranean Sea, put this all together. The weather patterns come off the Mediterranean Sea, hit Mount Hermon, and then careen down 10,000 feet to the Sea of Galilee which is why the Sea of Galilee today and back then can have these perfect storms on them that threaten even the most rough and tumble fishermen and sailors, which many of the disciples were. And so you have this perfect storm hitting on the Sea of Galilee that day, threatening the lives of Jesus and his disciples. And then the third movement happens in this story, the miracle. Now, here's where things get kind of rich. Mark tells us that Jesus was asleep in the boat. Do you remember that? Scholars, I mean, they are, oh my gosh, they focus on this like it's the second coming. They wrestle with, you know, why was Jesus asleep? We have no idea. They suggest maybe it's because he was the son of God, God incarnate, and he could sleep through anything. Maybe it's because he was teaching all day and he was tired. We don't know. We just know that it's important that he was asleep because what happens next is that the disciples woke him. And here's what is important. God's love language is not sarcasm. Do you all understand that? 
Some of you have a love language of sarcasm. I find that endearing. God does not, because when they wake Jesus, they say to him very sarcastically, what? Don't you care that we're about to perish? So they're highly sarcastic with Jesus. And this I love, Jesus says nothing to them. Did you notice this? He doesn't say anything to them. It says Jesus speaks to the storm and he speaks to the wind. So he's not gonna put up with their sarcasm. He has nothing for them right now. And he speaks to the storm, he speaks to the wind and he says, peace, be still. And they listen and everything is now calm. And then the fourth movement begins. He turns to them (laughs) and he finally speaks to them with a question or two. And he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And the response of the disciples, I just love the story as you can tell, is very humorous in its irony. Let's look at it again. Here's the response of the disciples. It says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So follow this. Jesus miraculously calms the storm and then chastises them for their fear and their lack of faith. And what is their response to this miracle and chastisement? More fear. Now that's funny, folks. I mean, he just said, have you no faith? Why are you so afraid? And they're even more afraid at this moment. In fact, Mark uses a phrase here in the Greek that's translated here in the English, great fear. In the Greek, it's the phrase megas phobos, where we get the English word mega from and phobia from, which means fear. So put together, it means mega fear, (laughs) like big time fear. In other words, they had more fear now that Jesus had performed this miracle than they did of even the storm. So this is what we got, five components to a short but power-packed story, five components that move us from the boat to the storm, to the miracle, to the question, to the response. And so once we understand this, now that we're fully engaged with the story, what do we take away from this? What do we learn for our lives today, 2,000 years later, as many of us, let's be honest, are dealing with fear based on the year that we've just had. I wanna suggest two things, two things that might help us understand our own fear and how to respond to it in our own relationship with the Lord. And so here's the first thing that this account teaches us, and it's rather profound when you look closely at the story, and here it is. And that is that the story teaches us there is a difference between turning to Jesus and trusting in Jesus. Let me repeat this. This is gonna be very important for you and me today. There's a difference this story shows us between turning to Jesus and trusting Jesus. I want you to look with me again at something that's going on in this story, something that you might not have noticed at first glance, but becomes apparent when you look a little bit closer. I want you to look again at verse 38 It's when the storm is in full force and the disciples wake Jesus and then use their sarcasm on him. Look at what it says in verse 38. It says, but he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they, the disciples, woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
Interesting. In the midst of their fear and panic, they turned to Jesus. In other words, they went from focusing on the storm to focusing on Jesus, which I'm gonna argue is a good thing. But even though they turned to him, notice that they weren't trusting him. In fact, the opposite. It's here that they ask that snarky little question, don't you care that we're perishing? They are doubting and wondering why he wasn't doing anything about their troubling circumstances. Don't miss this, folks. They woke him, thus turning to him in their time of need, but they didn't trust him as they accused him of not caring about them. Give me a head nod that you all see this in the story here. It's really important that we don't do a drive-by with this, and here's why. Because I would simply submit that you and me do the same thing today that you and I have this uncanny ability to turn to Jesus in our time of need. In other words, we wake him, if you will. We call out to him in prayer. We have a quiet time where we get our focus off the cares of this world and onto him. And though we feel so good and spiritual about doing these things, in our heart of hearts, we know that we aren't really trusting him even though we've turned to him we're digging our heels in as we turn to him and covertly say, why aren't you handling this storm better? You know, if I was you, Jesus, I wouldn't be asleep in the boat of my life right now as this wind is creaming off Mount Hermon down into my life and making a mess of things. Why aren't you doing a better job of handling this? I'm telling you, folks, we do this today. And so I love how Oswald Chambers, arguably the best devotional writer of the last 200 years of Christianity, uh, puts it in his wonderful devotional. Look what he says. This is powerful. He says, beware of worshiping Jesus as the son of God and professing your faith to him as the savior of the world while you blaspheme him by the complete evidence in your daily life that he is powerless to do anything in and through you. That's why I love Oswald Chambers. I read stuff like that and go, yikes, that's me. That's how I function. In other words, we worship and profess, he says, but then we go on our little lives and basically act like there's really nothing that he could do to change our circumstances. That's you and me. We turn, but we fail to trust, and in so doing, we wonder then why it is we're still locked in our fear. And so let's bring this down to the nitty gritty of our lives. The economy is still uncertain right now. All of you know that. And some, if not many of us, are out of work or struggling big time with our businesses. And so you do the right thing. You turn to Jesus by pumping out more prayer from your wheelhouse and increasing your church attendance and your Bible reading to show him that, that you're serious about your need for him in your life. But, but then you gotta get real and ask yourself, and only you and God know, are you really trusting him or like the disciples, have you turned to him and said, I need your help, and then immediately accuse him as to why he's not handling the economy better right now? I'm telling you, this is how Christians think. 
Or, or let's take the pandemic. That's probably the number one thing on most people's list. There's a pandemic out here and we're rather afraid that we might get the virus. I, I, I feel like that. And so we turn to Jesus and instead of quiet and stubborn trust, we inwardly still greatly fear that we might get sick or worse. And we're just like the disciples where we're tempted to say to God, and we might never say it this overtly, but it's in here. We say, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that this virus is running rampant in, in our culture? Or let's bring it more closer to home. How about our marriage or with our kids? Maybe your marriage is in trouble today or your kids are making bonehead decisions again and so we turn to Jesus and maybe we get some counseling and read some good Christian books and we ask others to pray. But deep down in our heart of hearts, and boy, I've been here, we really wonder whether he's gonna do anything about this at all. We really wonder whether he can change that stubborn spouse of ours or our kids that have just been doing this for so long. You see, this is the point, folks. Just be honest with yourselves. We turn, but we don't trust. Just like the disciples, we wake him, but then we question as to why he isn't meeting our agenda. We question why he isn't calming the storm and how he could allow such a downdraft to come in the boat of our lives and make such a mess of things. And just like Jesus did with the disciples, here's what you need to know about your Savior who loves you. And that is, he is, is that he is not interested in answering your doubting questions. That's a really important tidbit of the story. We tend to think, you know, well, well certainly if I'm honest with him, he's gonna be honest back with you. Well, with the disciples, he was not. With the disciples, when they gave that snarky, sarcastic response, he didn't even respond to them, did he? Why? Because he's not even gonna honor that kind of attitude with a response. And so some of you wonder, why is he quiet to you right now? Because he only has two questions for you when you're ready to listen. Why are you so afraid? <laughs> and have you still no faith? You see, here's what he is doing in your life. He's much more concerned with the state of your soul or your capacity, or in this case, incapacity, to trust him in the midst of the storm. And the first thing you and I need to do is get honest about where we are at and whether this might fit us in a year like we have had. I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I, I feel this all the time as a, as a preacher and as a pastor. I, I read the Bible, I get all fired up, I believe what it says, and, and I preach strong to you, and then I go home and do the exact same thing I accuse you guys of. I do, I'm human. And this year, the reason that I know so well about fear of pandemic and the economy and, and, and all the things going on is because it has gripped my life as well. There have been plenty of weak moments this year for your pastor where I've sat in the quietness of my office, whether here or at home, and I have just been wrestling with my heart beating faster and, and fear gripping me with all the what ifs. <laughs> my dad gave me a plaque years ago when I was in high school because I've always been a worrier and the plaque said, don't just sit there, worry. And, and that's been kind of true for me this year. I've started, that's why I know this list so well. And see, here's where it gets really insidious, because Satan is wily. 
What tends to happen, because I'm also a very serious Christian who loves the Lord and loves my church and loves you and, and all that, is that when I, when, I, when I start to doubt Jesus and I allow fear to get in, then I immediately feel shame. How about you? Because I go, man, I shouldn't feel that way. I mean, where's my faith? I mean, I can't believe after all these years that I'm not trusting him more. And, and all of a sudden, Satan whispers in my ear, you're no good. Man, I can't, I can't believe how, how after 40 years you're this bad. And I start to feel all this shame. And, and I know enough now that I, I block that shame out. I do. I just say, no, no, that's Satan. And by the way, Satan, you're a bigger hypocrite than I am because you're a fallen angel for crying out loud. So, so there. And, uh, and, and I block out that shame. And, 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 and then I do this, and this is where I think God wants us. Without shame, I simply own it before the Lord. And I say, God, you don't want me to feel shame over this because shame will make me want to hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. What you want me to do is come out into the open <laughs> and, and say to you, okay, God, you got me. I, I, I admit it, I'm, 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 I'm caving into fear again. I, I, I'm turning, but I'm not trusting. So we're gonna move on here in a second, but I need to ask you, where are you? And, and where is your red dot today? Cactus, Northridge, Chapel, those of you watching online, where are you? Could it be that you have turned and, and questioned him and still have increased fear? Could it be that you're just like the original disciples? Okay, you say, maybe, but now what? What do I do when I am stuck turning but not trusting Jamie. And I'm glad you asked because you're in a good spot if you can humbly admit this. And, and when you humbly admit it, it brings you now face to face with the second thing that we take away from this story. And it's this, and it's the entire point Mark is making as he shares with us the story. You're gonna love this. And that is that choosing to consistently lean into Jesus will guarantee that your fear will turn into faith. Let me repeat this, because this is the point of the story. Choosing to consistently lean, I chose my words very carefully here. In fact, it took me days to come up with this one sentence here to try to capture the, the point of the story. Choosing to consistently lean into Jesus will turn fear into faith. And you're saying, whoa, where's that? I want you to look one last time, just one last time at how this account wraps up. I want you to look at verse 41 and the disciples' response because this is very profound and many people miss this. It says, and they, the disciples, were feared with great fear, megas phobos, and said to one another, here it is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, listen closely. Focusing on that last phrase of the disciples there, I want you to simply notice that they are no longer questioning Jesus' ability to save them, are they? In other words, they turned and they didn't trust. Jesus gave them that, that, that response in the form of two questions, and now they are no longer questioning Jesus' ability to save. They're no longer doubting why he was asleep in the boat and whether he cared or not. Now they are in what we're gonna call total wonderment mode. 
total wonderment mode about who this Jesus is and how the man that they called teacher just a few moments ago is now acting like the creator God of the universe who sovereignly controls all things with the command of his voice. <laughs> That's where they are. Don't miss this. They're no longer seeing him as a teacher. They're no longer wondering why he, he, he wasn't doing anything. Now they're in this wonderment mode going, who in the world is this in which he can do a miracle like this? And they're even wondering, what might this mean for our very lives? In other words, they are well on their way to understanding what will be more fully revealed in chapter 8, which we're not going to get to today in Mark's gospel, when they will recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So please see, this is key, the light is going on in their heads they're beginning to recognize and realize who they got on their hands, who this Jesus really is, that he is indeed God come in the flesh, the savior of humankind. And as a result, you're getting a peek here into their lives. They are now beginning a journey in which they will choose to consistently lean into Jesus day in and day out. And it will be this that will allow them to see their fear turned into faith. And just so we know that this is indeed what's happening here in this story, look at how one commentator nails it when he describes the action going on here. <coughs> Listen to what he says. He says, the description of the stilling of the storm in the language of exorcism, meaning Jesus exercised that wind and waves right out of them, is intended not simply to demonstrate that Jesus possesses power over nature, no, its ultimate purpose is to show that Jesus does what only God can do. In the Old Testament, God alone possesses power to quell natural storms such as this. In this story, Mark informs us that the same power and authority belong to Jesus. Wow. So the disciples are beginning to realize who this guy really is that he is God come for them and that he can be trusted and leaned into. And so as R.T. France so aptly puts it in his commentary on Mark, this encounter with Jesus, it's not just about power. Everybody thinks it's about power. It's not. It was actually an epiphany that the disciples have here, a revelation and a revealing of who Jesus truly is in their lives. It was an event that allowed them to get a glimpse into the precise nature and identity of Jesus. And at this point in Mark, it's gonna accelerate in this entire gospel into an increase of understanding, an increase of faith that will eventually deal a death blow to the disciples' fear. And these men are gonna go on to change the very world as they have almost no fear and become known as stalwart men of faith. Don't miss this. It's through the regular practice of leaning into Jesus that faith is strengthened and that dissipates fear. And so the only question I have for you as we go into our wrap-up right now is how much are you willing to lean into Jesus in 2021? That's the question I got for you, Rich and Vera, Richard, all of you. The question is how much are you willing to lean into Jesus this year. And I mean really leaned into him. 
not just through a, a quiet time for 20 minutes every morning, but each moment of each day when you feel that fear coming on, are you willing to lean into him and choose him over your fear? And some of you say, well, Jamie, I've been trying to do that and I still have fear. <laughs> I don't say this to you very often. Try harder. I mean, honestly, that, that's the best I got for you. I, I don't know what more to say, but I've been doing this for 40 years. And all I know is that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And, and again, I don't say that to you very often. I'm a very grace-filled pastor and all of that, but, but this is where, where the rubber meets the road. Where I'm telling you, if you say you've been doing this for years and you don't like the results, well then try harder because faith is hard, amen? It's hard. We're, we're tempted to trust in everything around us but Jesus. We're told to trust in our economy, to trust in our healthcare workers, to trust in ourselves, to trust in government, even trust in your church. Those aren't bad things to trust in. It's just that every one of them will let you down, amen? They're all gonna let you down. And that's really the point of all of this. That the only way to adequately deal with fear, watch this, is to know someone who can calm the storm and put you at ease. See, see, fear really is relational at the end of the day. Most of us never eradicate fear alone. Let me give you a couple of examples from, from real life. Say you have cancer and you're all fearful that it could be really bad and you're gonna die and then you go to your doctor for your follow-up appointment after they've done the biopsy and all of this and the doctor looks at you and says, Roger, got really good news, it ain't that bad. We're gonna be able to treat this and you're gonna be okay, brother. Let me ask you a question. Are you put at ease at that moment, yes or no? Of course you are. It's like you're all worried and the doctor said, hey, Myron, it ain't that bad, you're all right. Or, or, or say you, you, you have this problem, say your retirement. You're nervous about your retirement and whether you have enough money and, and will the market hold and you go to your financial advisor and your financial advisor says, hey, Richard, I got a plan, trust me. I got this plan, it's gonna work out fine. And he explains the plan to you and all of a sudden you go, whoa, I, I had all that fear for nothing, I'm gonna be okay. So two examples, cancer and then retirement and, and what puts your fear at ease was that you knew someone who was able to calm you with some good news. Here's the problem, is that there are times in life where the doctor doesn't have good news and where the financial advisor says, I ain't got a plan for you. <laughs> it's gonna be rough waters no matter what. And the question becomes, who do you turn to then? The disciples teach us this. Turn to the only guy that can calm the storm in your life, and that's Jesus. And learn to lean into him, just like you've leaned into your doctor and your financial advisor. Lean into him and see where that gets you. Because here's what I know, folks. I've been doing this for, again, 40 plus years now. And as I've been leaning into Jesus very consistently in my life, I find that he's good for this. And that there are plenty of times, even in this last year, or though I had fear, as I leaned into him and made a regular practice of leaning, 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 sure enough, over time, the storm, or at least the calm in the midst of the storm, started to come. Years ago, I was uh, spent a lot of time reading some of the more mystical devotional writers. I, I find they can be quite helpful, guys like Henry Nouwen and Brennan Manning and, and, and Julian of Norwich and people like that that just were more mystical writers and I don't necessarily share all their theology but, but I found that they had some 
some uh, insights into God that were helpful. One of the guys that I read years ago is Thomas Merton, who wrote The Seven Story Mountain and, uh, and, and then wrote his famous book, Thoughts on Solitude or Thoughts in Solitude. And there was a paragraph that hit me really hard, a prayer that he wrote that I think is very meaningful for you and I today. I wanna share it with you right now. Here's the prayer of Thomas Merton uh, in his life. And I find this very real and very powerful. He says, my Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. (laughs) And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. Can any of you own that? He says, but I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. Pause right there. So if you have a desire to know God, if you have a thirst inside you, I tell you these guys all the time, that's a good thing, follow that thirst. That's what Merton is saying. And then he says, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about that road. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Whoa. So you're gonna fear. It's a natural part of your fallen soul. But if you got a thirst inside of you, not just a thirst for more money or a better job or a more secure you know, uh, lifestyle within your culture, but a real thirst for God, follow that thirst. Follow the disciples as they turn to Jesus. And when you turn to him and that desire in you, that I know is in you guys, because the Holy Spirit's in you, allow your, your, your soul not to, to distrust him, but to lean into him and to rest in him. And I'm telling you, as you make a choice to do that and consistently do that, it takes time to train your soul this way, you're gonna see your fear start to go down and your faith start to go up. Paul the apostle was such an ardent believer in this that he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But don't ever underestimate faith. We're only left with three tools in our toolbox till Jesus returns. Faith in him, which is a rugged leaning upon him each moment of each day. Hope that he's on the horizon and he's got your future. And then love. Don't get snarky with each other. Don't get snarky with God. That's not his love language. Love and care for each other and toward God. Don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing story that never ceases to amaze me at human nature, but what you call us to do as ones filled with your spirit. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, I know the dear folks that are assembled here today and at Cactus Northridge Chapel and many, many watching online. And Lord, I know that if we've come to believe in Jesus, if we've done that initial turn toward him, then our hearts desire him above all else. We can do no other because we're yours. And so, Lord, as, as we kind of push away sin and push away fear to consistently lean into you, may you make 2021 a more victorious year than the one that some, if not many of us, have had. 
And Lord, may we shine as lights as we talked about Christmas Eve to the world around us that they might see a very real, not fake, but a very real trust that we have in Jesus that has made us ones who are not as, as gripped by fear, but more guided by faith. So we trust you, Jesus. We pray these things only in your matchless name. And we all say together, amen.